what what got you interested in entrepreneurship? So what sort of set you off on this journey early on? Oh, entrepreneurship for me is something that started a long, long time ago. I mean, my um, my father um, he ran our family business back in back in Germany, uh, the fifth generation family business. So, and in, in, in my in my mother was a um, kind of self employed physiotherapist. I I don't really know any anything different. Um, I was actually more of an outlier when I started after university take a take a job and, and not do something myself right out of the gate so this has always been my <clears throat> ambition to to do a to be entrepreneurial yeah Florent, just because i'd love to hear more about your background right because you're now doing a deep tech startup what a lot of people consider kind of like a high tech deep tech um, <laughs> company um, but your background, you actually started a property business, if I'm not mistaken, was it every state? Yeah, uh, so I'd, lo- I'd love to hear kind of the story that maybe took you from, you know, what you studied up until founding every state and then why you then went on to money machines. Yeah, sure. So the, the, the studies that I chose, um, was, um, business, like, uh, I think in German, this is called a diploma Kaufmann. It's essentially a master of business administration. Or, or a master of science in, in economics and business. Um, I, I picked that uh, university. It's called the WHU uh, Otto Weissheim School of Management because it had very strong entrepreneurial um, track record. At, at, that, that, at that time, more from an industry point of view. And as I was going through my studies, this whole um, Germany rocket internet thing kicked off through the alumni or through the students of of that university so i was kind of at the at the center of the um yeah what do you now have in this this kind of berlin-based startup mafia so these are all people that went with me to university or a couple of years earlier a couple of years after um and when i when i started you you grad you graduated become a consultant or a banker that was the the standard thing and with us, it was kind of the first two or three um, classes that really went to do startup first. Um, I graduated in 2008, um, which was a tricky year for doing a startup. I had with a couple of um, friends from, from uni, we had everything lined up, uh, a business, even went to the US for business plan competitions. Um, and then first Bear, uh, Bear Stearns went under and then um, Lehman went or nah, wasn't, wasn't quite, Lehman hadn't quite, quite started wobbling yet, but we kind of realized that doing a funding round in kind of July, August, 2008 was not going to happen. So we all took our plan B. Um, one guy went to work for the Zamba brothers directly. The next guy went to BCG and I started work at Google, um, to just kind of have, have something to do. Um, and then when I started at Google, um, I started um, seeing the woman who is now my wife, and she started at Lehman Brothers. So I kind of was very close to this whole fallout, and uh, it it was a good decision not to not to bet on entrepreneurship in two thousand and eight. But I then spent probably five years trying to claw back from that. Right, because I, I, when someone asked me when when is a good time to start a business, I would still always say right out of uni, and um, because first you you start a job, you get used to a slightly different lifestyle, um, you you have other commitments, um, some people want to get married, you kind of you put it off, put put it off, put it off, delay, 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 um, and for me, I I what I when I finally. I tried a few times to do some sort of a spin-off of, out of jobs that I had along the way, um, but it never really quite happened. Um, some issues with finding a co-founder or, or finding good traction initially with a business model. So, Florian, um, when you say that you tried to do a spin-off, 
were you sort of looking to start businesses in the industry that you're working and like come up with something in that industry? So, okay, I think we would optimize this. So, so there, there was one, there was one company I was working for when I came, came to London and it was called Sigma Response. So it was a direct marketing company. And they said they had, they had very good experience in advertising a product on, on, on TV and, and, and Google AdWords. So I was running the whole online thing. And I kind of graduated from just doing Google AdWords to doing all sorts of online marketing. Yeah. And we, we thought we could spin out with that platform. We could spin out a different product that was going to supposed to be a, um, kind of control calorie controlled diet box. So you have a subscription for basically ordering a box with all your essential food items and lose a lot of weight while just eating what's in the box. Um, so we, 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 we did a big roadshow. We pitched to index Excel, all of these, um, learned a lot, (laughs) learned a lot there. Um, basically it was too boring of a business. It wasn't deep tech enough, right? They said, this is an execution business. It's basically, I can clearly see your KPIs. I can give you a hundred thousand or so to get you started, but as you need to see some traction and we had, we had the platform, we had money from the business and all the contacts that we were going for. Let's let's raise a couple of million and make this really big from the start. Um, okay. but how how did that affect, like affect did that affect you at all on a personal basis where you had this expectation right this is what we want to do with this business and you kind of go into these people that can make that happen but they kind of come back to you and say hey this this isn't as interesting as, as well, you think it, it is you try it, to it it first affect me personally well. Um, of course, you're disappointed. I mean, the, the 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 co-founder I was working with at the time, he pulled the ripcord and went back to his um, investment banking job, and said, "Oh, much well, much better off here." Um, and I stayed company for a little while, but um, I also then decided that it was time to move on because the I had been with that startup for for long enough. The spinoff was an attempt to get it to more interesting. Um, and then I uh, I went to to um, Glossybox in 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 Berlin again. Berlin. Subscription e-commerce was 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 relevant, and they had a lot of need to kind of structure their online marketing team. Um, it's quite a big corporate job. Um, I mean, it was a startup, but I had a pretty big team. I was working with like local marketing directors in in, in twenty markets. Uh, it was a very interesting business that had raised massive amounts of money rocket internet, um, high pressure growth uh, environment, uh, learned a lot there on what to what to do with company culture, what not to do with company culture. Um, do you want to shed some insights there? What what to do and what not to do in company culture? I, th- I think I think the um, you have a so what, what Glossybox I think did did very well, they had a pair of uh, founders um, boyfriend, girlfriend, um, that had done extremely well at building a initial MVP recruiting, I think something like 10 people to, to get these beauty box subscriptions going in, in Germany. And there was a really cohesive team. They all knew what they were doing. They were packing the boxes together. They were celebrating success together. Um, and then they, um, got really pushed by, by, by rocket to make this really big and turn this into an international business. And this kind of high focus from the, from a very, very ambitious investor, um, to grow very, very fast. And, and then I think half a year later, when, when, when I joined, we, we found, okay, so here's 20 markets. There is in every market, there's a team of five or six people where everybody's called founder and CEO and chief marketing officer and, and what have you. And they, they weren't able to transport this Berlin-based culture for the German market they had built into all the other local markets and kind of try to play catch up while we were still growing. Um, and it, it really, it's very hard, I think, to, to, to take a very, very good brand and good culture global within a matter of a few months. Yeah. But that was kind of what was required from, from the investors because they were competing with 
Birchbox in the US, right? It's 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 again there are a lot of questions about what's this rocket internet model and the copycatting and all that. But at that time, that was 2011. That was the the dream they were chasing, right? They 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 had copied um, Shoe Dazzle with um, or what was it called the Zappos? Um, they had a Zappos clone. They had a Groupon clone. They had. All of these things where execution was the only thing that really was going to establish the or, or justify all the money that has had been put in and i mean i think looking back hardly any of these businesses is, is sustainable now right you see the the um fast delivery companies also collapsing one after another the scooter startups had the same kind of um land grabs and for for me personally i think i Maybe not ex immediately after Glossybox, but I realized that for me, these businesses where execution is is absolutely everything and the technology is almost secondary, that wasn't that wasn't that interesting to me or mm, not anymore. I think this is something that was very suitable to early 20s people that can throw seven days a week, 24 hours a day at their startup. Uh -huh. But now where I am now, right, we our machines are not going to work better just because we do crazy hours, right? If you do the same thing over and over, it's just, if it's poorly designed, it's still not going to work. But if you have a market land grab, if you call another hundred customers and another hundred customers, yes, you are going to somehow grow. Question mm -hmm. is, they're going to stay with you, but and so then yeah. I think from from that tale, it's very very insightful actually because I think a lot of people would immediately say. All right, software is the answer. Let me try and build a software product because that's very scalable. Um, that doesn't require, you know, kind of yes, loads of hours of time. So that for, for me, maybe the inverted commas safer option would be to go to software. So I'm very interested to hear why did you go after such a big, you know, such a big challenging problem, one that requires, you know, huge capex and you know, building physical products. What was it? about that that appealed to you? Was it kind of the problem set? Was it, you know, a passion for helping farmers um, via money machines or what was it? What was that trigger? So in also also compared to to what I've done with with every say, um the the appeal was okay, so let's fast forward 20 years. What what would I be happy with my, I mean, legacy is a big word or what's on your tombstone, but essentially when I have three kids now, um, the first one came along, or I kind of started every day when the first one was just kind of six months old and you start thinking about, so what do you tell them one day? What you, what, what did you do? Right. And I mean, every day was a wonderful experience in terms of learning how to build a company myself and getting to make a lot of mistakes. Which I've made plenty. Um, I mean, I, I spoke about what we did and didn't do right at Glossybox, but not sure I did better at every stay. Um, but I say, okay, so what do I explain? What I what, what do I tell them when they're old enough to understand what what does daddy do, right? And on the example of every stay, it would be okay. So we help people that own holiday houses to make more money by doing it a little bit differently, right? So we make people that are already well off, a lot better off. Um, and that doesn't really sound as great. And so the I asked myself, so how can I do something that is really impactful, that that is something where I can that I can be proud of that we helped fix one of the larger problems of, of our time. And I realized that as a as a business guy, um, there is very little I can do there on my own with just kind of hiring some software people and building a software i think this kind of innovation through software only that is very 2008 to 15 maybe and it's, this time is kind of it's kind of done right and so we have in in our my, my family in law and um, they're they're portuguese and they took over a um, farming business about 10 years ago. Um, this was a time when in, in Portugal, there was a big recession, land was very cheap. So there was this plot, um, nearly a thousand hectares, so quite big, that came on the market for nearly nothing. It was completely run down, 
it was a is a um, a cattle meat meat production business and a bit of olive production. Trees were cut down. All the water reservoirs were depleted. The cows were mal- malnourished. The herd was very small, and so I saw them slowly building this back up with investment timeframes of like, yeah, okay, we buy this irrigation system. It might pay back in twenty years or so. Um, and so this kind of long term horizon, watching watching that, and this ambition to say, okay, what can we do in terms of that? There's something that's really impactful. Kind of led me to so let's led me to this to this attempt to say what can i do in agriculture is there anything technology wise that we can bring to agriculture to make that better um that was before even understanding that there were problems i just kind of saw how with what simple measures my family in law managed to turn this ruined business into something that is sustainable now from economically sustainable and now only we're coming into this point okay what can we do on our regenerative can we do organic like this is now the time where, where they can start thinking about that which is super exciting but as a as a as a founder those were kind of the, the the touch points and i i knew i couldn't just build an app and tell farmers how to run their business better right that that was that was too much or they i would probably be chased off farm if i came along with that so when I met my co-founder Chris at, at Entrepreneurs First, and he said, "Okay, I can build robots," and I also think there is something with technology that we can do that should be doable in farming. We um, went on, yeah, this this full 360 journey of speaking to all types of different farmers. We spoke to the the, the meat industry. I mean, there's a lot of challenges around um, abattoirs, labor shortages there, about uh, humane um, slaughter or in the, the, the shooting the animals in field and not transporting them. There's that. There's a lot of stuff in poultry. There's a lot of stuff in, in dairy. Um, and of course, most ag tech businesses so far that have re- reached scale, they were in this whole broad acre field crop area where you have high fertilizer prices, where you have um soil degradation and all that um and so we thought this is a, a path that has already been widely trodden and the people that we spoke to that were the most anxious but also the most underserved were the 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 growers of um specialty row crops field vegetables and soft fruits that told us about their their labor shortages and then when you hear okay here's a here's a labor shortage for a task that requires humans because you need to understand with your brain and with your eye what can i pick what can i not pick and have to have manual dexterity in the process of picking it so that you don't destroy the plant so they can give you more fruit the next day and you have a robotics person in your team that that looked like something that um that matches that in principle there is a problem that you could look at solving so that's that's very interesting so how did you go about solving that because obviously as you said, an app is obviously way too simple a solution, right? But the benefit of software is that you can roll it out, you know, in the space of a week or a weekend. So how did you kind of, because obviously, you know, there'd be a long time for you to design these robots, build them, scale them up, manufacture all of that. So how did you kind of propose your solution to these farmers' problems initially? Did you say, all right, we're building a robot this could potentially help um, solve your problem? Did you have some kind of prototype or did you not start building until you had uh, validated the farmers would actually want this? Also, if I can add to that, probably ask extremely similar questions, but from a different angle. Did the aspect of immense amount of capex deter you at the beginning? Whatever your, you know, your co-founder, EF, probably guys met in a more informal setting, right? Mm. And he said, oh, okay, I can build robots. And did, it, did you guys sit down and think maybe there's going to be too much capital expenditure if we go about this process, as James was just alluding to there, you know? This is something that we got uh, challenged a lot on at EF. Yeah, I mean, they they are, I mean, they do great work, but I think they're a lot more comfortable in, in non-hardware intensive businesses, um, specifically SaaS. So, um, yes, we had to we had to overcome that. I mean, for Chris, I mean, he's a robotics engineer, right? So there isn't really um, 
that's what it takes to build robots, right? It's um, from my point of view. I had after after um, spending some time at uh, at SumUp, um, a which is a payment provider that built their own hardware. I had kind of sworn to myself never to do hardware again because I I saw firsthand how long it can take to build, even if it's just a handheld payment device. But then you have to get it regulatory approved, and, and it, it was a long journey for them. Um, I kind of broke that promise to myself going getting into muddy machines just because I saw the immense amount of customer pull. So that's what really convinced me that this is something worth worth doing. If you I mean people think that when you speak to farmers, you're speaking to these small businesses where there's a dude sitting on a tractor and there's like one or two chickens and a cow and then he has his fields. That's not how modern agriculture works, right? These are businesses with hundreds or even thousands of employees at peak season they spend huge of land as well right huge, huge amount of land. of land either directly owned or under management i mean in yeah. in in specialty crops the, the 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 hectare sizes are a lot smaller than like in soy or or corn or or wheat but the 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 revenue per hectare is a lot higher right and Florian, just to give our listener base an idea, because agriculture is not an industry that I'm familiar with whatsoever. <laughs> so like an, an average uh, customer for muddy machines, how much revenue would they be turning over in a year? So for, I, I, give you, I give you this example. So one field worker for a, a season um, of, let's say, asparagus harvest costs the farmer something like, seven thousand pounds and in in hourly rates so if you if you um, build a robot that can build um three that, that can that can replace uh, three people four people you're in this kind of twenty thousand pounds per per robot revenue in the in the season now uh, in the in the season Oh, so the, okay, okay. Renew for the for the season. I mean, we can get into why we chose asparagus in in a minute as well. But the the point is that people, a, a farmer who has so like a small production where he can basically harvest with two or three people or do it himself with his family, that's not the kind of um, client that we that we were going for, right? We're aiming for operations that need a hundred or or even. And our key customer here in the UK, they need a thousand people a year to do their harvest, right? So they spend um, almost a hundred thousand a day on labor in the in the season. So that gives you an idea that our kind of core customer target, if you look at it from a from a B two B business point of view, those are accounts that have at least half a million, if not six million a year in recurring revenues. For to, to grow that account, right? I mean, growing an account means we first provide them with a small number of robots to kind of prove the concept on, on their land and their field that it works operationally for them. And then the, the situation is that they only get about half the labor that they need at present, right? So you can backfill their labor gap to a point where you're easily making several millions per season in, in harvest service revenue with them. Um, and then, then only do you come to this point where you are beginning to replace labor with with robots, like labor that they would actually be able to get otherwise. And we'll see. The labor trend is, I mean, it's very problematic for farmers, but they see less and less labor availability every year. They are getting hit by minimum um, hourly wage increases, not only in the UK. So the... Um, cost of production is rising, rising, rising for them. And we are, I think, not unreasonable to expect that our bill of materials is going to drop as we build more and more robots. So there's a, there's a, the, the, the per today's alternative is going up and up and up in price. And our technology solution is over time going down in price. So we, we want to be competitive from the get-go versus European, North American or British labor. But there are very large um, producer markets in Latin America that obviously have lower labor costs. But I think over time, we can also be competitive there. And for asparagus, this is Peru and, and Mexico. I mean, they, they grow several multiples of the hectares that, that you have in, in Europe. It's, it's staggering. For where are your target markets at, at the moment? Because it sounds like, so you said asparagus, 
and obviously yes. looking at uh, customers that have quite a lot of land doing up to 6 million recurring revenue a year. So are you finding that majority of those are in the UK? I'd imagine not, right? Because the UK doesn't have huge farms the same way North America does. Well, a few. But... Yeah, I mean, the huge farms in North America, those are, again, monocrops, soy, corn, um, cereals, etc. mostly, right? The, 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 the vegetable producing operations are also nowhere near as big. I mean, what you're thinking about is the big corn belt um, um, operations. They have. They also have issues with getting labor there, right? They they couldn't grow vegetables even if they wanted because they couldn't get the people all the way into the middle of nowhere. So target markets. I think as a, as a hardware company, in order to raise money for your expansion, I think you need to show a clear path to profitability after after your Series A, right? So yeah. our base case is to focus on the UK, which yes, it is a very small market compared to the rest of the world um but really reach like find a find a find a um very easy to understand projection of reaching profitability here um but then having the upper the, the the option to with more with more investment injection to start going international quicker our first market after the uk is probably canada and um North of the United States, there's a grower region in Ontario and Michigan. That's like they're two states next to each other, just across the border. Um, and and that would be my first um, place to expand. We've been invited to do field demos there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there is a very very strong pull from the customers, the, the Peruvians and Mexicans. We've actually been to Peru in October and done some field tests. The interest is is there. We just need to. Kind of save our bullets and say, okay, is it is it smart to go international first before you've even deployed more than ten robots in in one place? Right, you have it's quite common advice world. across a lot of a lot of industries. Right, it's like prove out your unit economics in a yeah. small area, show that this is a viable business, um, and yeah. don't don't kind of do your outreach and your geographical expansion before you're ready. So we have all the contacts, right? But I'm very wary of setting up service infrastructure, et cetera, um, before, before I know I can actually earn money with just a handful of locations here in the UK. Um, but Sorry, what, what, the other, one thing just I wanted to point out really quickly before we get too much into asparagus, right? The asparagus is, is just our, if you want to, want to word it this way, the first killer app, right? Our robots sprout is a tool carrier platform that can work in a variety of these specialty crops. And we are aiming to, yes, build our own implements like the asparagus harvester, but very soon also work with other robotic startups that have built a solution that works either for picking or for weeding or for monitoring or for soil sampling, anything like that, but they are lacking a drivetrain. And so that's that's what we really want to bring to this whole agtech robotics industry is be, I think there's probably room for several, but like be one of the main platforms where these labor replacing implements run on. Okay. The question I have for you, Flor, is how why not Germany? Because I'm just looking at the list of the top countries that produce asparagus. So for your you know your beachhead market of asparagus. Yeah, you're looking at the FAO data or what are you looking at? Um, FAO. That's right. Yeah, twenty twenty. Yeah, the FAO. That's that's um that's an interesting one because they don't split between green and white asparagus. So you need to again speak to the to the farmers themselves and to the industry to understand. Yeah, okay. These are the 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 tonnages, the hectares, the production values reported by the countries. If you look at the FAO data, your your first market should be China. Because for right. some reason, <laughs> they are eighty-six percent. They yes, they so they are claiming that they are producing, and and this is something I don't want to put myself on record with saying, but the 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 industry views it this way, right? So Peru and Mexico are the largest growers. China claims to be twenty times larger than the top ten other countries combined. 
Is it likely that China is big? Yes, probably. Are they as big as Mexico and Peru combined? Maybe. Are they 20 times bigger? Probably not. But anyhow, we, we without getting ahead of myself, market choice, right? So Germany, yes, comes up as a top producer, but it's mostly white asparagus. As I mentioned, we want to build a platform that we use a couple of crops to kind of kickstart that and demonstrate the use, the usability. White asparagus is a crop that is mainly grown for the German market. So the Germans grow that themselves and they have some Greek producers, um, you know, some Spanish producers that kind of feed into that market. But white asparagus isn't really consumed much outside of Germany, France, Netherlands, of course. Um, and so it's estimated to be only like 30% or 20% of the global production. So the question really is, where are your green markets? And also, what is the transferable robotic skill? So white asparagus is very specific. It grows under the ground. So you have to kind of dig it up. That makes it very labor intensive. But the green asparagus is the same plant. It's just that you let it grow through to the to the to the surface and then harvest it at ground level. So, spotting something with a computer vision camera, understanding what it is, understanding whether it's ripe, um, and then cutting it off over at ground level, for us was a very transferable skill to develop to then deploy into other crops like above ground, recognizing it, cutting it off. Yeah, that could be an artichoke, that could be a broccoli, that could be a cauliflower, that could be um, in a slightly different angle, could be a courgette. But if you have built a white asparagus skill where you detect something underground, dig it out, etc., where is that transferable to? That was our question. And we couldn't find an answer. And so there are there were two companies that did white asparagus robotics. One, ha one has now already gone under um the other one seems to be seems to be doing better but i think they will stay with white asparagus they will not expand to to other crops um and for us that is integral to our to our strategy to be a really big meaningful company to to say yeah we can deploy our robot into the asparagus field with the asparagus implement the, in the early season from april to july and then something like a courgette that grows from July all the way to November, right? They've only recently stopped harvesting. Um, and then you can utilize the, the hardware that you've built, not three months of the year, but six months of the year, right? And most um, agricultural machines, especially in the harvest space, like a combine harvester, costs you a million dollars and you use it for like a week. And then it stays in the shed because you're done with your harvest and everybody else is also done harvesting because that is the week where in that part of the world, the wheat was ready to go. And that's, I mean, we have very strong views on sustainability and impact. And we didn't want to build a machine that would be again like that. A lot of hardware, a lot of tech in there, use it for a short period and then put it in the shed. Commercially, you can obviously still make that work. People buy combine harvesters, but for for solving the, the the labor problem people are versatile right the asparagus harvesters when they're done with the picking season for asparagus they transition to something else they transition to blueberries to rhubarb to to some other crops that they that they're also needed for and if you're building a, a robotic solution you need to also be versatile i think yeah there's there's actually great lessons in there for any listeners and founders as well it's like not just in the agriculture or the hard tech space, but try and pick, you know, a beachhead market that then has future potential to be expanded out into. Don't pick something that's going to really silo you off. You know, if you, if you build a product that's for a very, very certain subset of people that actually has no potential to expand, instead try and pick something where you can actually project, you know, five, 10 years out, a much wider amount of people is going to use this. And, and I use it. We were, we were um, you asked me about the challenges from, from early on, right? So not only F, but also other accelerator programs where we were um, accepted in, they challenged us very strongly on this. Really, do you want to build the drivetrain, the software, the computer vision, and the end effector yourself? Why don't you focus on, on one thing? Um, and we we had such strong conviction that Yes, we need to do that because 
all of the if you just build an end effector, well, then you have an end effector, but no no product, right? Then there, there are some companies that have then mounted a um, basically car manufacturing car manufacturing robot costs a lot of money, such an arm, fifty thousand pounds on a tractor, and they go take it through the field, and they, of course they can pick stuff. But at what cost, right? That's never going to be competitive with um, a, a human worker, in, in, in my view. So we said, no, we, we cannot just buy an off-the-shelf drivetrain because the autonomous, battery-powered, small uh, vehicles, robotic vehicles that you could buy are in that they come from the defense industry or from nuclear power plant cleaning, where you spend 100, 200,000 on a robot. And I told you how much a field worker costs, right? They're completely out of whack with the unit economics of, of farming. So we said, no, we have to innovate. Not on the, I mean, we're not the first people to get a robot to drive, right? But we're, we're probably one of the first ones to get it to do that at the cost that actually works for for growers. And and another thing that I think listeners probably don't know. When you in, in 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 farming, soil compaction is a real issue. If you drive over the soil with something heavy like a tractor, you compact it. So think about it like a sponge, right? If a sponge is fluffy, you can pour water on it and it will hold that water. If the sponge is already squeezed, you pour water on it, it runs right through. And so the water in farming, it is also water, but it's also nutrients. So if you have a compacted soil, you have a terrible yield. You can you can dope it for a while with fertilizers, but it is essentially not going to give you the return that you're looking for. So they need to really watch out what drives over their crop. And in vegetable farming, you need to harvest almost every day. So if you were designing a machine that is very, very big and very, very heavy because designing it is so expensive, we need to have a massive throughput. We need to replace, let's say, 50 people, 100 people with one machine. Then we're actually building something that will destroy the land. So that's why we need to stay small and light with, with the robots and can only think in the replacing one, replacing three, maybe five people dimension, because otherwise you get, you get too, you get too heavy. And this kind of sets up your, um, the, the borders of your, from your, for your design choices. And you need to stay modular and you need to stay like at a certain price. But that's that's a, that's an exciting challenge, right? We we have very very good people on board now that that understand that challenge. And for engineers, this is this is great, right? If you have clear goals of what you need to achieve, what you can innovate on the on the way to 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 building that product. Florian, is this this these challenges you just mentioned? How did you first? realized there were challenges? Was it by hiring people, as you just said, that are experienced in the space, like obsessively educating yourself in the farming market once you decided to go in? So I imagine you did know this stuff when you were working on yeah, it. Yeah, right. I think as a founder, you need to obsessively educate yourself first, right? And this is probably one of the biggest values of Entrepreneur First, right? Because they've kept on pushing us into, into that, like validate this, create an assumption, validate it, find someone who will validate it, who is telling you, right? And because the we were we were lucky to run into a an industry that was extremely desperate for a solution we got a lot of airtime from these farmers so before long we had and we still have calls with him every every week almost he's like the largest asparagus grower in the UK he grows almost half of the production here um he has a pack house where 12 other growers pack their asparagus, and that's almost 80% of the total market. So if someone like that tells you, A, there is no other solution out there, B, I, I'm really going to support you in figuring out from a crop science point of view what you need to do, what, what is acceptable as a solution and what isn't. Soil compaction was one, can't be... I mean, it doesn't have to be cheaper than labor, but it can't be completely out of whack. Otherwise, I'm not, I mean, losing crop because I have no workers is bad, but spending 10 times as much to harvest that crop also doesn't work, right? So that's one other border that he, that he gave us. And then how do you harvest it? How, where do you have to cut it off? How do, what, what, how do you have to train your algorithm in order for it to, 
pick only the, the crop that is now ripe. You can only get that through educating yourself, talking to your customers and, and bringing them on board. He's not an investor, um, but the amount of time invested by, by him and his, his, his company in us is, is really a key enabler for, for where we are now. Right, we can any any day we have a we have a we have a permanent porter cabin office on one of his farms, which is probably again one of the largest asparagus plots con like connected asparagus plots in the UK. We have access to power, internet, and a, and, a, and a big shed where we can house our prototypes. Where we can take them out into the field. Even even on days like today, we can do some tests and driving in the snow or in the mud. Um, that is extremely valuable for us. So it sounds like the perfect focus group. Yeah, yeah. Um, focus group, um, um, customer champion. Um, but for, if you want to look at it from a B2B sales point of view, this business is an owner-managed business. So you have very quick decisions. We, we work, like we have investment from another company, Barfords of Botley. They are much bigger, not in asparagus, but overall they import crops, etc. They are amazing to work with, but of course there is a board there that needs to kind of approve decisions, and and there are a lot more protocols to 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 follow. Um, so I think if you if you if you as a founder have the choice, who is my who is my lead customer? If you have someone on the other side that has a lot of agency, it doesn't necessarily have to be an owner manager, but someone who can really. If you convince that person, that person can make a decision that is going to save you a lot of time and, and disappointment. Mm -hmm. It's like when sales, when they talk about, you know, you can make a cold call or a cold email, but you want to make sure you're in front of the decision maker before you actually start selling or else you could be waiting. Yeah, yeah the, 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 decision, the decision maker and also decision maker and expert combined almost. That's right. Um, yeah. It it is it is hard to replicate in in big B two B right because your counterparts are they tend to be corporates right yeah 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 so it's very interesting you say Florian that you had to kind of you're always in this state of re-educating yourself yeah. and I wanna I wanna come from the angle of like how does that feel because you've obviously spent decades, you know, you started in kind of more marketing roles, you worked at startups, you founded companies, you've learned about the property market, and now you're learning about agriculture. And all of these things, they seem quite disparate. Um, I'd love to hear your take on whether you think they are disparate or they're all interlinked. Um, and kind of what lessons have you taken forward from all your past experiences into this new one? I never really sat down and thought about that. Um, I think as you're going through your 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 founder journey on 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 a venture, previous experience kind of give you certain deja vu moments, and and that's why you have your learning experience. So if if um, an employee comes to you and ask a question about, yeah, what about my career career development, or um, I I have something going on at home I need to deal with having the experience of not not being confronted with that for the first time right it, it it really helps you to to handle that well or to actually know yeah we have a policy in place for that already take your compassionate leave and 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 and, and there you go but there, there are so many examples also on if you, okay i've done a lot of online marketing and online marketing for our business right now is is is, is almost irrelevant right i'm not going to run a TikTok campaign and convert farmers to sign up to buy robots or to, to, to contract robot services. Um, so it is not, I'm not a, our marketing, we don't need performance marketing. If anything, we need um, like person to person sales once we have that scale and wonder where to put our robots. Right now I know all the customers already and we don't really have a distribution risk, but Knowing that this is how online marketing works and deciding that you don't have to bother, that also saves us time and headache, right? If, if, if um, some in investors like to do that as well, oh, well, if, why don't you have more of a social media presence? Like, yeah, we do post sometimes, but it is more of a 
We, we know that we need to speak to investors online. We know that we need to speak to potential employees online. So that's what we're building our online presence for. The farmers, I mean, come to my farm with your robot and show me what you can do, right? I don't, I mean, your video is nice, but show me, right? That's that's what works. And when you can I like show- I like that video as well that you had at the event where we met, we met about a month ago, right? To any listeners yeah. at, a, at a deep tech event in London and- I approached your stand because I saw you had what no one else had. Like you had a physical prototype, like if I'm not correct, probably like a, a half scale down or a quarter scale down version yeah, of the, of the bot. Of this thing here. I love know. it. There we yeah. go. Well, I did actually, that's crazy because I didn't even realize it was that big. Um, yeah, because I'd only seen the scaled down version. That's very big. Um, but you had like a little video that walked it through, kind of showed me in two minutes, everything I needed to know about how it worked. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fantastic. I'm sure we can we can kind of post this on the on the show notes. And no, absolutely. Again, right. This is this is it is a very fortunate situation that we have something that is so easy to understand. Right. This is very clear what we're doing. Of course, there's a lot more lot more magic behind that and the expansion option, cross crop functionality, etc. That requires a bit more explanation. But in principle, if someone meets muddy machines and I say, yeah, we are the robotic harvesting company that, that, that sticks. But I think the, when you come back to how have the past experiences helped, I, I think the biggest, the biggest learnings is, is how to, how to not do, not to do something. Right. And the, what, what do you, you have to always prioritize as a founder, like, what do you do? What do you do first? What do you do now? Because you have limited time and, or, for Muddy Machines, Chris and I, we set, we took the time several days very early on to actively think about our values, what kind of culture do we want to build. That is the thing that I find gets quite easily overlooked when you're in the trenches, building, 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 or selling, selling, selling. Um, but this is kind of the thing that you need to fall back on as, as you as you grow from two people to five people to 10 people to, to 20 people. If you only start thinking about that when you have 20, 30 people, it's, it's, it, it's a bit late. It's a bit, it's no longer coming from you as a founder, right? It's something that you then quickly have to whip up just like everything. Oh, here's another prototype, make some slides on culture and, and let's go. Right. And we said, no, we want to be farmer focused. So this is at the core of our, um, of our, of our values. We want to build technology that has very, very high quality. We want to have people here that are absolutely relentless at at solving problems, but we want them also to be um, very um, healthy, like healthy for the planet and healthy for themselves. Um, and and that is something that keeps on coming up when you think of okay, what choice do we make on this kind of policy, this kind of, of work schedule, or even the, the the lunch choices for the team sometimes. And and the and the last thing, or I mean, these are not in any particular order, but the other thing that is very very important to us is that we, when we hire people, they show um, ownership the same way that we as founders show ownership to to the business. You know, tidy up your desk, <laughs> don't leave it a mess, but also do stuff that really matters, right? And, and I think this way, if you get the mix of that right, I think you have a you have a culture where people really have agency skill and and impact in, in in what they're doing and at the end of the day maybe maybe this is a learning from employments that i've been in right you you sometimes you realize what i'm doing here doesn't if i don't show up tomorrow it doesn't really matter you asked about learning right if he's like okay i they've trained me and now they expect me to kind of um give them an roi on the training that they've given me for the next couple of years Make so and so many more sales call, close this account, do this, do that, write the emails a little bit prettier. Um I think for me, when you when you when you plateau on your learning like that, <clears throat> that's when I always started to to look around for something else. So again, how do you get people to to stick around with you in, in in the company? You need to give them a similar kind of experience of know what you're doing matters feel that you're that you're learning and and also feel that you're appreciated and it, it's hard to scale that right on a one-on-one basis yes you can how many people can you take for lunch every every day of the week and and and, and tell them that they matter i mean you need to 
instill this as a as a feeling in the company where it's not only the founders live that but everybody else and the people that report into them also live this kind of um atmosphere yeah but i think what you're saying is super super instructive especially for early stage founders looking to kind of not just start a business but sculpt the vision behind their business because what you're kind of getting at is build a mission statement build your core values i mean it sounds so fluffy right it sounds uh, this is this is so like consultant speak etc but sit down with a couple of post-it notes whether it's one value or five or three um it is also a very good exercise if you have a co-founder right in, in every stay i was a single founder i didn't bother with that like i know what kind of business i want to build and I, I then realized that people were were completely directionless after a while. I was, like, I was like, what do you want from me? Of course, we just made, need to make the business a success. The success is it's a marketplace. How many houses do we have? How many, how many guests do we have? That's self-explanatory. No, what's the vision? Jesus, leave me alone. Um, now I realize how important that is. You need to answer that question so what's what's our what's our vision now we want to sustainably solve agriculture's labor challenges with robots did you learn the hard way it is it is it is, it is funny how you you that people or it's something that you need to realize as a founder that people don't know that when they engage with your business as an employee or or anyhow you need to state that proactively I think, yeah, I think a lot of people just see it as a job, right? And it's, it's a trend that I've definitely heard, which is the CEO is ultimately, like they've started a business because they are very invested in their vision. Um, and I've heard from kind of people that are, you know, 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line in that journey, that it becomes so integral to your identity that you can't even separate yourself from your business, right? Um, and you need to, I think you need to start a business where this is okay with you. Right. If you yeah. if you have a business that is insanely profitable, but actually what you're doing, you don't really want to tell people about. You don't want that advertised. It's it's going to chip away at you. It, and they it, say a lot of the time, like the co-founder is the first sell. Right. If you can sell one other person on your vision, um, and they get as on board with it as you are, it should the be easier. Together, right. I I I didn't come to to Chris with oh here I want to sustainably solve agriculture's labor challenges. No. Right. It's like I really think that there is something to be done in agriculture with technology. I don't know what. And he was like, yeah, that's intriguing. I think, I think so too. But that's, that was the initial um, common denominator. Right. That's really interesting. Thanks a lot, Florian, for your time. No, it's been a really insightful conversation. I mean, Suresh, do you have any other questions? No, I don't actually. Thank you, Florian. Really appreciate that. I think I've learned the. Uh... Thank quite you. a lot about the asparagus industry and i imagine mm -hmm. that at muddy machines company lunch is just the end plates of asparagus for everybody <laughs> i don't want to imagine the smell of the bathrooms <laughs> yeah i could i mean our farmer john could give you a long um presentation on the kind of smell bit on asparagus and how it affects some people and not others um but um, of course, we do eat a lot of asparagus, especially in season. We put them on the barbecue um, at the farms. I can highly recommend that. And yeah, I mean, watch this space, right? We're building now our first small fleet to deploy in April time. So we're going to have five sprouts in the field doing commercial asparagus harvesting. So we're currently doing a team rota who is going to be basically full time in the field supervising the robots, including bank holidays. Um, yeah, it's going to be an exciting uh, season for us. Awesome. Yeah, really, really interested to keep up with where it's going and the agriculture space in general. I think you've inspired both of us to actually learn more and dig deeper in that. So thanks a lot. Yeah, and all the best for everything. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Take right. care of yourself, Florian. All the best. Bye.